0: Would you join me in turning to God's Word, particularly to John chapter 1, where we talk about God's Word become flesh. John chapter 1. We'll be reading the, verse, the first 18 verses. Uh, just a little background, the last few weeks we have been focusing on kind of a, a bigger picture perspective of Christmas and where it falls within, the, within God's coming down. Which is something that happens from Genesis to Revelation, but, but it happens in a special way at Christmas time. And over the last few weeks, we've been focusing on, on some of the ways that God came down. We, we noted that God came down in a sense, or at least he spoke through his word, or he spoke his word to create the world. And we find out that uh, from John, as well as other Old Testament passages, that in fact the word. Uh, was not just a spoken word, but it was an active word, and, and is identified with Jesus in John one. God, so God came down in a special way to create the world, but then He came down more personally when He created humanity. He came down and and got His hands dirty, literally. He He formed man from the dust of the earth. He breathed into him the breath of life. He took a rib from, from man, and, man and created woman. And then he spent uh, time with them in the garden, walking with them, talking with them. Until they decided it wasn't enough. It was not enough just to be sons and daughters of God. They, the serpent convinced them to want more equality with God. And, and because of that, they sinned. And because of that, they were ushered out of the garden And God also left. But the story of the Bible from that point on is God coming back down gradually. He started by looking down with Noah and looking at the world and and the, the tragedy that it had become. Later he came down some 13 times to Abraham and some 40 times then to Moses. And then one day he said, I want you to build me a throne and put it in a tent, build a tent for me as well, a tent called the Tabernacle, where God would dwell with his people, but as a nomad shepherd in a sense. There's this, this picture, the, the whole camp of Israel was arranged like a sheepfold, and when God went out and led them uh, to go to the next place, he led them as a shepherd leads his sheep. And uh, God was going to dwell with them in a tent because they were going to be people on the move, moving around through the wilderness. Finally, after 40 years, when God allowed them to to come to the promised land, and they got to the point where they were a little bit more stable than they had been, and they asked for a king. First, God uh, gave them King Saul, and that didn't work out. And then he gave them David. And it was under David that God centralized worship in Israel. Otherwise, it had been all throughout the the land of Israel. He centralized it in Jerusalem, and, and David wanted to build God A house, a palace, a temple, a more permanent place for God to dwell. He had just been in a tent all this time. Uh, But God said, now is not the time and you're not the one. Your son will do it. And so when Solomon became king, one of the first things he does is build a temple for God. So God has a permanent residence now with his people. In both cases, the tabernacle and the temple, the proof of God's residence was his Shekinah glory that filled the Holy of Holies. But along with that temple, God said, you know, this is fine, I'm going to dwell with you until you decide you're going to follow other gods. And once you do that, I'm gone, and the temple is going to be destroyed as well. And we see this this picture we looked at last week in Ezekiel 10 of, uh, of the kind of glory of God, as it were, standing up from his throne, the Ark of the Covenant, moving out into the the outer courts of the temple and then to the eastern gate, and then he was gone. Now, later on uh, in Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel, it prophesies that God's going to return and his glory is going to come back. But by the time we get to the, the first century in the New Testament period, we don't see God in the temple. In fact, the the uh, rabbis are very candid about it in their intertestamental writings that the Shekinah glory of God never reappeared. The Ark of the Covenant never came back from exile. Where was God? There's a question, one of the questions on people's minds as we enter the first century. And we're going to see how a couple of gospel writers answer that question. Next Sunday we'll look at Matthew and Talk about the prophecy of Emmanuel, but this morning we're going to turn to John and see how he answers this question uh, for the people to whom he is writing. So John 1, the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human, a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And particularly these, this word from, chap, from verse 14. The word became flesh. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as you inspired John to write these words to to address his particular audience. We pray that you would now inspire them to us this Advent Christmas season, that we may understand, but also that we might feel your presence, that you are God with us, and what that difference that makes for our lives and for who we are to be as your people, as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, throughout Advent, we've been looking at the concept of God with us, noting that the history of the Bible is really one of God coming back down. He comes back down, first of all, to Eden, but then leaves at, with the fall. With Moses, he comes down to live in the tabernacle in his Shekinah glory, and then later to a permanent temple under Solomon. But then the glory departed in exile followed by a promise that the new te- of a new temple and the glory returning someday when he would be God with us again. We know that the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and the returning remnant from the exile, added to a little bit by the Hasmoneans, and then greatly expanded and made glorious by King Herod the Great. And yet for all its glory, there was no true Shekinah glory in the temple. The question remained would God return to his house to be God with us? Well, John's Christmas story is very different from that of Matthew and Luke. No shepherds, no angels, no magi, no innkeeper, not even a baby, really. Instead, John presents the Word. The Word. Writing to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, John searches for a concept, a a current concept, a loaded concept, to explain how God revealed himself in Jesus. And logos is the concept he used. Logos is, uh, is translated from the Greek word, but to the Greeks and to the Jews it meant more than that. To the Greek, Logos was reason, reason, with a capital R, a a divine rational principle that governs things. William Barclay described it as nothing less than the mind of God controlling the world. So there's this idea that God, God controls the world through the Logos. He maintains his connection with the world through the Logos. The Jews had a very similar concept with the word wisdom. Again, you could say wisdom with a capital W. Because wisdom was personified as God's agent, God's co-worker in a sense. And we already see this back in Proverbs. The first nine chapters of Proverbs talks at different times about wisdom. And you may recall that wisdom is personified. Wisdom calls out in the street, warning the, warning the sun not to get trapped by the wayward women. And, and uh, talks about being involved with the creation of the world. It was the Hebrew word "davar," which also means word of God. But, but not just a spoken word or written word, but also an active word. And so there's a good reason John takes us back to Genesis 1, quoting from the first words of the Bible in the beginning. He reminds us that the Word, that it was by the Word that God created the world, that He created light and life. Now, before Jesus' day, there was a Jew named Philo, and he's known in philosophical circles. As Philo the Jew, who actually tried to use this idea of Logos to unite Jewish religion with Greek philosophy. He portrayed the Logos as a mediating figure coming from God and forming a link between God and the world, representing humanity as a high priest and advocate before God or God in action. So with all this background, you can see that John has chosen a loaded term, understandable to both Jews and Greeks, but giving new meaning to it in order to help them understand who Jesus was. And we, some of the things he talks about Jesus are fit with that Logos concept. He's eternal and divine, preexistent, preceding from God and yet a separate person, And as a word, Jesus was then both God's divine self expression, but also his final revelation. This is what God looks like with with flesh on. He was creative and illuminating, an agent in creation through whom God gives life and light, the word that became the the word that was the, the creative agent. And he was also active in the world. We read earlier from Isaiah 55, and in verse 11, God talks about his word going out, accomplishing what he desired, and then returning to him. There's that that picture, again, of the Logos. So up to this point, John's Jesus kind of makes sense to his readers, both Jews and Greeks, until John gets to verse 14. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. Because up to this point, some of the Jews might have been saying, well, what about this issue of God returning to dwell among us? What about the promise of Shekinah glory returning to his house? And John says, well, the word became flesh. Now, this would have confused both Jews and Greeks. In the Greek worldview, Logos was a lesser god because a higher God could have nothing to do with the material world. He could have nothing to do with flesh. But the Logos himself could not become flesh, because as a mediator to God, he had to maintain contact with God as well. For the Jews, yes, God had appeared to them in visions and dreams. He had even appeared to them in uh, human-like Appearances called theophanies, but had never really become flesh, and they didn't have this sense that God could really become flesh. But notice, John describes Jesus as the one and only, literally the only begotten. He seems to be alluding to Psalm 2, which was a psalm about the coming Messiah. Originally, it was a psalm about the king, but it became a psalm about the coming Messiah. And in verse 7, uh, God says to the Messiah, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so John reminds, at least his Jewish readers, that it's not totally out of the realm of, of possibility that the Messiah is actually the Son of God, that this is the one Psalm 2 refers to, the anointed one, the Son of God. But perhaps even more stunningly, John says this is... God in the tent. For we read, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Here again is the God with us idea, alluded to in many Old Testament scriptures and awaited for by by the people of Israel. But literally the words mean pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent among us like in the days of the tabernacle. Because, you see, John doesn't use the normal word for dwell or live, but he uses a rather rare Greek word, uh, skene, which means literally to dwell in a tent. To dwell in a tent. Now, later, when, the, when many of the, uh, the Jews couldn't speak Hebrew, by the, by the New Testament times, a lot of them couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. But certainly later, beyond that, they decided that they would uh, do a translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint uses the word skene that we have here to actually translate tabernacle from the Old Testament. So there's a, there's a connection there. and In fact, they even share the same consonants. They're all part of the same word family, skene and mishkan, and there's another word that fits in that family that shares the same consonants, and that is Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God, which also describes that, that indwelling glory of God in the tabernacle. Those were all the same word. And John says, So this is the one who has made his tabernacle among us. He's, he's pitching his tent once again, as God did in the Old Testament. But some of them might have said, John, how do we really know he's God with us? Coming back to live with us like the days of the tabernacle and temple. Because John says, we have seen his glory. The Shekinah glory of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John says, we've seen his glory. We've seen that glory that has been missing from the temple for all of these years, that glory that left in Ezekiel chapter 10. And the sages had prophesied that when Messiah came, he would be invested with God's glory, with his Shekinah. So John is saying, the glory has returned. The presence of God with his people has returned. Christmas, you see, is about God coming down to his people to live with us once again, to bring us light and life, grace and truth, to again show us his glory, but mostly to be with us, Emmanuel, he our God, and we his people in Jesus. But now I want to jump ahead of Christmas for a little bit. We'll get back to that next Sunday. Of course Jesus lived on earth briefly as God's uh, Emmanuel, God with us, but then he ascended to the Father. So he's no longer with us in the flesh. And indeed we have that great promise in Genesis or in Revelation 21 and 22 that God will come down finally to dwell with us permanently. But until that incarnation happens, uh, the incarnation today happens in a new way, in a different way. Not so much God with us as God in us through the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus left his disciples with a promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And ten days after he ascended on Pentecost, they were all gathered together at the house, the temple, which is where they would have been for that a Jewish pilgrim feast. When the Shekinah glory of God appears... As the Holy Spirit and wind and fire blows into the house, the temple. But he doesn't stay. He blows out of it and into the lives of believers in Jesus, symbolized by the tongues of flame on their heads. God, who while on earth always made his dwelling in the tabernacle or temple, changes his address from the temple in Jerusalem To the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. And this means that God with us today is us, in a sense. That we are God's incarnation. We are God's embodiment, what Paul would call, and we'll look at in a few weeks, the body of Christ. We are God's incarnation, his hands and feet to our world today. So that the Apostle Paul could say no less than three times to the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's Spirit lives in you? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? For we are a temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. You know, in the Old Testament and even early New Testament, when people wanted to see where Israel's God lived, the the Jews would point them to the temple in Jerusalem. Well, when people want to see where God dwells today, no longer can they look at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The temple's not there anymore. Rather, they look at you and me. But the good news of Christmas is that, that Jesus came to reveal to us God and his way to life but another part of the good news is that the incarnation has not stopped. God hasn't stopped dwelling with his people. He still lives in the world today. And until Jesus returns again, for a people who you come in contact with, he looks a lot like you, like the church. So the question of Christmas, but more importantly, the question of the new year and the years to come is, how will we be? the incarnation of Jesus, the body of Christ, to our world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word become flesh, that you want to live with us. And now as we've been given the responsibility of being your body to our world, we pray that you would find us faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by reminding ourselves that we have a role in embodying Christ and being the incarnation. Go tell it on the mountain. It's number 93 if you're following along in the Lift Up Your Hearts hymnal, verses 1 through 3, and let's stand as we sing, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Receive God.